Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 6th. I'm John Sorensen, sitting in for Andrew Walworth. With less than five weeks until the November 8th midterm elections, the margins continue to tighten. And although President Biden's numbers are slowly improving, events continue to pose a potent headwind against Democrats retaining control of both houses. Recovery from Hurricane Ian began this week as it turns out to be one of the worst storms to hit Florida in recent memory. In a brief display of bipartisanship, President Biden met with Governor DeSantis, with Biden praising DeSantis, telling reporters, I think he's done a good job. Inflation continues to be the dominant issue for U.S. voters, and after small improvements in fuel prices in September, OPEC has announced it will be restricting oil production starting next month, already leading to a spike in prices. Combined with Russian restrictions on gas for Europeans, the likelihood of a global recession this fall and the drag on the U.S. economy only increase. With the short-term economy out of their control, what are the options for Democrats to retain control of the House and the Senate in the remaining weeks before the election? What are the prospects for Republicans? And how are the potential 2024 presidential candidates navigating the midterm waters? Joining me to talk about all this and more are Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Susan Crabtree, national and White House correspondent. Uh, so, Tom, last Friday we had Sean Trendy, Real Clear senior elections analyst, on, and were able to get the razor precise prediction of somewhere between six and thirty seats <laughs> uh, picked up by Republicans in the House. Where are the current Real Clear averages, and where do you see them moving in the weeks ahead? <laughs> yes, Sean was not feeling uh, not feeling uh, like he had a clear crystal ball. Um, look, I think the. The fundamentals of this election are sort of coming to the fore now. And after a summer that involved, uh, you know, the Dobbs decision and, and uh, you know, the legislative victories by Democrats and, and the president and this idea that the Democrats were, were climbing back in this election, um, we've seen in the most recent round of polls – Republicans start to sort of move ahead in the generic congressional ballot, move ahead in some of these Senate races, but, but they're not running away with it. I mean, it doesn't, it's with five, four and a half weeks left, I guess. Um, you know, there's still, uh, I think some movement to be, you know, this could either go, um, particularly on the Senate side where, um, you know, these races are going to be really close. I think a lot of them, all the contested Senate seats, um, we've got a lot of money being spent now. Uh, we've got some debates coming up. But overall, I think Republicans still, the fundamentals still favor Republicans. If you look at the president's job approval rating, you look at inflation, you look at any of these numbers, um, they give Republicans the tailwind um, that, uh, that particularly in the House of Representatives, which makes it almost, you know, impossible for Democrats to to keep control of the House of Representatives at this point. I mean, they would need, they would need significant improvements uh, in a lot of these metrics over the next four weeks, which just doesn't seem like it's in the cards. Carl, you and Tom talked Tuesday about how the smattering of October surprises in the Fetterman-Oz contest and the Walker-Warnock race might affect things. Does the underlying tribalization make politicians immune to these kinds of last-minute Oppo research reveals popping up or any basically, you know, any kind of major news turns in the next few weeks of really moving the dial one way or another, or, or even the debates. I mean, Fetterman and Oz or, or in some of the other races, do you see any of that shifting it significantly in, in either direction? 
Well, John, that's a real good question. But but you, you remember this in a razor close in a razor thin election, um, a few thousand votes can matter. So, you know, uh, the story last week or was that, you know, Herschel Walker, who's running as a conservative Christian pro-life Republican in Georgia, that he paid for an abortion. Uh, does that does that change many minds? Not many. But what if it changes just a few? And that, and, the, and that Georgia election is as close as the last two Georgia Senate elections. It could be dispositive. And that and that's the point. Yes, your 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 major point is right. You're, you're operating on the margins, especially these Senate races. But sometimes the margins are all it takes. You know, in our the real clear politics uh, map battle for the Senate 2022, you can find it on our website. Uh, that material is free, like all of it. We've got um, 46 seats that are likely Democrat, 47 likely Republican, and seven toss-ups. And, uh, and of course, and among the toss-ups is not only that Georgia race, but six other races. Three of them are seats held by Democrats. One, one is a seat. Well, three are held by Democrats. You know, three are by the rest, other three are by Republicans. I mean, that shows you how close, close this Senate race looks like. So, yeah, we're polarized, all right. And bad news doesn't, you know, mean what it once did, but it, uh, something can, you know, affect a close race. Anything can affect a close race. And, you know, and the other thing is, uh, I'll say this, that phrase, October surprise, I've used it myself, it's overused, but uh, a huge spike in uh, gasoline prices at this time. I mean, that I don't, th- I think that's the last thing the Democrats wanted, especially in these close house races. I just, that, there's no way that helps, John. It has to hurt. Susan, it seems like the race is really two, as with so many things in our politics, two mirror worlds. You know, one is a, a battle over economics, over inflation, uh, prices rising, et cetera. Uh, and the other is a, a culture war. Uh, which does the White House wish it was and what can they do in the, in the coming weeks to uh, to to shape the concept contest for, for Democrats? Well, I think that the President Biden is trying to do everything he can to bring down gas prices and to the to the effect we've learned in the last 24 hours that he's going to lift sanctions on Venezuela so they can start pumping uh, gas and exporting it to the US and then we had a little bit of a return of oh we're going to come to the, they're going to come to the table with their opposition Maduro is promising that well let's see if that plays out uh, but it it seems like he's getting pushed around by these uh sort of authoritarian figures around the world. Uh, you got, you know, Saudi Arabia saying, no, uh, we're going to cut uh, OPEC uh, gas production. And uh, that's really been upsetting for Democrats. You had uh, Blumenthal. Oh, d- 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 despite Biden's visit to to uh, Saudi Arabia to try and convince them otherwise. That's right. You know, that he, he obviously that didn't go so well. And you have Senator Blumenthal saying, oh, we're going to, stop our uh, military uh, support for Saudi Arabia and all Democrats are writing bills to do that. So obviously they are very, very concerned about the old saying, it's the economy stupid and abortion uh, is a, is moving the, the ball down the road for Democrats. I mean, it's something that they see as a moment, giving them momentum, but just how much, how many voters really believe that that's their number one concern right now as we're facing um, uh, the country on the brink of a recession. So talking about the continued tribalization, we're always trying to identify which are those groups that uh, actually can be influenced or, or moved back and forth. 
this week on the site was a, a new Real Clear Opinion Research survey conducted in concert with the Catholic television network EWTN, looking at Catholics' attitudes uh, towards the president and, and current politics. It, it's it's no surprise that Catholics, like most of the country, are, are split on their support for their fellow Catholic President Biden. Carl, uh, Catholics represent about one-fourth of the electorate. W- what did we learn from this poll? Well, um, John, the uh, Phil Wegman, who wrote a story about this, and, and Susan uh, helped analyze it uh, for EWTN, I mean, we, we were struck. There, there were a few things that were striking. One, one of them is a basic question. When asked if the president should run for a second term, uh, 58.4% of Roman Catholics said no. Uh, only 22% said yes. So, and, and among that 58%, because, you know, he's he's about split in favorability among Catholics, are a sizable number of Catholic voters, and, and I assume non-Catholic voters, who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and do not want to see him run again. And I just think that's a, that's a very interesting thing. The president obviously can't say now that he's not running because that in our system that makes him a lame duck and there's hardly anything worse. Um, but that was a striking thing. And I look, John, I'm probably the only, only one on this panel old enough to remember John F. Kennedy. Uh, when, when Kennedy was president, Roman Catholics around this country and, you know, they voted for him, you know, 85, 90 percent. But even the Republicans were very proud of him, very happy. And, uh, you know, and Kennedy you know, famously had to say that he wouldn't he wouldn't do what the pope said. He was going to you know, he's a Roman Catholic and a loyal one, but he would he would, you know, be his own man. And he was. But we've now come, you know, all these years later and Biden doesn't get any, he just doesn't get a break. I mean, he's the second Roman Catholic president and Catholic voters are not, they're not much different from other voters uh, on some of these key questions. But you you, you can argue that they should be and they are. He just doesn't, it doesn't help him with them. And the other thing, the other thing was that uh, Latino voters are split. Uh, Latino Catholics are split on this president. And, you know, and I remember Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's brother, was a hero in the Mexican-American community in this country. And this guy, not so much. Susan, what was your takeaway from the poll? I thought it was incredibly interesting that, you know, last time we did the poll, it was back in July, I believe. And basically the country was split on who they were going to vote for, um, Democrats or Republicans in the midterm. Now we're seeing that the Catholic vote is shifting toward the Republicans by about four percentage points. And that can be enough. That's more than we've seen in the Real Clear Politics average of polls, where it's about 1%, 2% uh, Republicans are ahead right now. Uh, so that that's a momentum shift right there in the Catholic vote. The other thing I thought was interesting is that you had a, a sort of a flip on Catholics really did, even though they're very difficult to you know typecast because we're talking about all Catholics, those that go to mass regularly and those that only go once a year, we're, we're taking them as a whole. But they did help push uh, Joe Biden, uh, the second Roman Catholic that we've had as president over the finish line um, in 2020. So that is it's interesting because now he's underwater um, about by the same amount of points as those that gave him the, the put him over the finish line. So he's about 47% uh, percent approval rating among Catholic voters and 52%. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting is that when it comes to abortion, you would think Catholics would, would uh, be 
very supportive of the Dobbs decision. And actually, they're only supportive by one percentage point advantage there. So, and they're saying that that's not going to affect which candidate they vote for, even though personally, they do believe that uh, the law should be only uh, for the life of the mother uh, in sense that that should only be allowed. And also, they're very supportive of the 15-week ban that Graham uh, proposed in legislation this past couple weeks. Um, it was controversial, even among Republicans, that he did that. Uh, but, you know, overall, only 10% are listing abortion as their number one issue. The economy still reigns supreme among the Catholic vote. Can I add something to that, John? Oh, please. Um, I was struck by that, too. And, um, you know, we we gave the the poll gave people it wasn't an open ended question, but I think five categories, um, abortion, immigration, uh the economy, uh, education, uh, and we the economic questions were split between inflation, which is its own thing, and then economy and jobs. Inflation was by far the ha- highest. Now I want to give credit to my uh, co my co podcaster Tom Bevan, who's been saying this for months. But here we had now this is Roman Catholic voters, but they're pretty. It's, it's a bellwether group. I mean, as you said, John, one fourth of the electorate, but. Asked to name their top issue, yet yeah, 10% said abortion. And those 10% aren't, they're, they're on either side of the question. They're not all pro-lifers. Um, but inflation, 34%. Um, economy and jobs, 20%. So, you know, the, the, the Democrats want it to be, this election be on abortion. Well, 10% think it's the most important. Republicans like it to be, you know, also among the culture on immigration. That's only 10% too. Uh, but, you know, 54% said no. The economy. So I, I don't, you know, that strikes me as, you know, maybe good news for the re- Republicans. And it's what, and I, as I said, it's what Tom Bedman's been saying all along. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that, and, and I, I think American Catholics have always had this reputation as being a lot more diverse in what parts of the, the church's teaching they, they choose to integrate into their own lives and their own worship. There's a, there's a lot of variety in what does it mean to be a Roman Catholic in, in the U.S., and uh, the numbers, uh, you know, I, I, w- I was looking at the numbers on a minority of Catholic voters disagreed that politicians who aren't in line with the church shouldn't take the Eucharist. You know, it was 49.3% said politics shouldn't in- interfere with a believer partaking in the Eucharist. So it's kind of this recognition of like, okay, we're all, there, there's a lot of different kinds of Catholics here and uh, we're going to let everybody decide what they're, what they're kind of Catholic. I mean, would well, you they're, just- they're, they're Americans, John. So they, they right, don't like exactly. being told what to do. Period. You know? right, exactly. <laughs> even, exactly. Even by the Pope. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. I've, I've heard, you know, derogatorily people call them, you know, uh, cafeteria Catholics, you know, where they might, you know, pick one or two things here and, and reject the teaching of the other. But, but you're exactly right. That's, 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 you know, and that, the the anti-abortion movement, although obviously anti-abortion Catholics have been uh, an important part of that, but that the 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 real strongest uh, political force for the anti-abortion movement was evangelicals and not necessarily well historically necessarily no historically no John they they when I was when Ronald Reagan was governor now I hate this I hate to say stuff that happened before you were born that makes me feel like an old fart but I was born before Reagan Carl <laughs> okay go yeah. ahead well, yeah, we go were ahead. too. <laughs> When Reagan was governor of California, he signed a bill um, uh, legalizing abortion in case of uh, rape, incest, and the health of the mother. And this word health, we're still fighting, you know, 50 years later or whatever it was. This was 19, late 60s. Um, he was warned 
that that would be a loophole that you drive a truck through and that the health of mother could be mental health and you could get, and the, the way the bill was written, a psychologist who never, who just hung out a shingle, never spent a day in medical school could write a slip to women and they would, and this is what happened. But in those days, the, the, the strongest opposition in the legislature were Catholic Democrats. The, the support came, most of it from, uh, you know, laissez-faire Republicans like Reagan himself, Western sort of small government Republicans. That, that has changed. And as you're and you're right. And when Jimmy Carter was president, the evangelical Protestants said, wait, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? Abortion is illegal in this world. Oh. And then they joined forces with the Catholic bishops. But that point Susan made was important if you're talking about the, the midterms, because the Catholics who are most opposed to abortion, they also they go to mass the, most often. They say the rosary the most often. They uh, they believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, if you don't know what that means, look it up. Uh these are, these are the, they vote Republican, those groups, I, that, that, that cohort I talked about, and they're more highly motivated to vote, vote. So when you hear about, you know, a politician turn out his base, that sounds like a crude expression, but that wouldn't mean, if these Catholics go to mass every Sunday, vote, they tend to vote Republican. And, you know, will, will, will Dobbs turn them out in reverse? In other words, it's, is, does it only help Democrats or do you get some push there from Republicans? As with all of these groups that we're talking about, it's really the intensity of feeling uh, that that really makes a them difficult to predict in terms of, uh, you know, the overall polling. But but that's what really matters. So if you look at frequency of worship, not just uh, what religion people are, it makes a huge difference in, in how these things turn out. Well, there's a there's a corollary among Protestants. Um, yeah, the uh, you know, there's. Different God, there's, there's so many Protestants. Sex, we, Susan and I, we we're well church. We couldn't name them all, but you you can't. Um, the people who evangelical Christians who go to church most often uh, belong to a mega church. You know, we we know the type. They vote Republican. Um, mainstream um, Protestants, uh, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, these main long mainstream denominations, uh, they are not they're not conservative. They they tend to be liberal, and so and so even but. Among among people who go to church the most often, they tend to vote Republican. So politics is in our name here at Real Clear Politics, and a midterm full of razor thin margins is not enough for us. We have to start looking ahead to twenty twenty four right away. Susan's got a great piece on the site looking at some of the twenty twenty four potential presidential candidates. Tim Scott's midterm mission. Susan, what were you reporting about with uh, Tim Scott? Well, Tim Scott, he is doing everything he can. He will not talk about 2024, even though he seems like he's willing to be at least auditioning for a Trump's vice president. Um, he did tell Fox News last year that he would be open to the concept of running with Donald Trump. And uh, But what he is focused on right now, he tells me, is this getting over the finish line uh, for the Republican majorities, either in the House or Senate or both. And he's gone to like 31 different districts or, or states. He's had uh, different events around the country. He's raising all kinds of money. His seat is safe, to put it mildly. <laughs> so. Right, right. So he's actually been spending a lot of time in Iowa. He's going there again next week uh, uh, for different candidates. He's having a a fundraiser for the whole party in Iowa. Interesting because it's a dual purpose there. You know, he's doing it the old fashioned way. We used to see sort of these politicians use their leadership packs 
to build up chits all across and loyalty and loyal supporters all across the party. And Donald Trump sort of destroyed that. And he's actually sitting on a, a war chest of 125 million. He has not while he's held rallies for uh, for different candidates. And obviously he's played um, the role of kingmaker in many, many campaigns this uh, cycle, the primary especially. Uh, he has not doled out any donations. And I think that's where you see the difference. You have uh, Senator Scott giving $17 million um, in, in independent expenditure, soft money on behalf of different candidates. And he just cut a $5 million check to McConnell's leadership pack. Um, as you know, probably know McConnell and Senator Rick Scott, who's in charge of the Senate re-election operation. They've been sparring over candidate recruitment and money and all kinds of things this cycle. So you can see that uh, he's willing to put the money where his mouth is. And so I feel like it's sort of this first play in building the groundwork for his own future and a Republican revival that he wants to lead. He wants, uh, before I, I did this interview with him, I really questioned whether he had sort of the fire in the belly to run for president or even vice president. I thought, you know, does he really want to be out there? And certainly he's sort of questioned. He doesn't want to be used as a prop. He talked to Trey Gowdy about this uh, a while back when he first came to Congress. He's wary of that, you know, that he's one of the only the kind of star power uh, minority voices in the party. Uh, but now he's really coming into his own and he, he there's no doubt in my mind he wants to run. He wants to run for president or vice president. He'll take either because his he likes to talk about it. His mom always told him to shoot for the moon and you can reach for the stars. It's a little Ted Lasso like, <laughs> but it's hard not not to really, you know, not just like the, the the bad journalist in Ted Lasso. I don't know if you watch the series. It's hard not to root for him because he's pretty, pretty charismatic. Tom, who else do you see starting to position themselves, even though they may not necessarily be up for election uh, this cycle? And do the outcomes of the midterm shape their strategies? In other words, is a is a red wave big win better for them or is it actually um, more strategically beneficial for some of these potential presidential candidates to have kind of a, a smaller win for Republicans because they can they can argue for a bigger change in 2024? Mm, I I don't know. That's tough to say. I mean, I think it obviously for the ones who are in competitive races, the bigger the win, the better. Uh, you look at a guy like Ron DeSantis, who's considered the sort of you know heir apparent to Donald Trump. If Donald Trump doesn't run, there's a poll that Mason Dixon poll that just came out the other day showing him up eleven points. You know, DeSantis double digit victory much better for his prospects in 2024 than a you know two point victory. Right, he'll be able to sort of, you know, claim the mantle of of being a, a candidate for for everyone. Um, <clears throat> that he got, you know, huge huge bipartisan support, won a huge, you know, plurality or majority of independents, and and that'll all be, you know, roll right into his his pitch for for twenty twenty four, assuming he decides to run. And I think that, you know, all of this is contingent upon what Donald Trump decides to do. And it seems like Donald Trump is. Uh, going to run. I mean, I, he's giving off all the indications that he's going to run. Every time he goes to one of these rallies, he teases the crowd about how he's, you know, they're going to be happy with his decision and it's coming soon and all that. And there was this back and forth about whether he was going to do it before the election or after the election. Um, but it seems like he is intent upon throwing his hat back in the ring um, for better or worse. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a case that could be made that Donald Trump. <clears throat> 
you know, has been good for the Republican Party, very good in terms of realigning the parties and and winning over working class voters, Hispanic voters, uh, and the like. On the other hand, you look at the data and and you know, outside of Republicans, there's and even among Republicans, there's a certain section of Republicans that don't want to see him run and think the party'd be better if they moved on to a a new fresh face. Um, so. So we'll see. But I mean, if, if Donald Trump doesn't run, I mean, you've got obviously Tim Scott, but, you know, Glenn Youngkin's out traveling around. Ted Cruz is out there. Uh, you know, don't all these folks. Mike, that, don't forget Mike Pence. Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Christy Noem. Yeah. Where, where is Mike Pence? Pence has had to, to straddle this line with the January 6th hearings of, of being the reluctant hero and also trying to remain relevant somehow. Uh, what just in terms of the in terms of the midterms, is he a potent force for campaigning for Republicans, or is he still is he struggling to to maintain that relevancy? Well, Pence is Pence got a couple issues. One is he's the he wants to be the most pro life person in a very pro life party, um, but you know he's got first of all he's got competition there. Secondly, some of these Republicans like Mitch McConnell, who sort of look at you know take the long view and look at it strategically, think this might be. Being an absolutist on abortion may not be the winning issue for us, you know, that we, that we pretend it is. Uh, the other problem with Pence is that people, you know, he gets it from both sides of the uh, on Trump. People who hate Trump, and there's a lot of them, even in the Republican Party, think that Pence was a toady. Uh, people uh, who love Trump um, think that he let Trump down. So, you know, because he didn't, he wouldn't help him steal the election. I mean, so it's like the guy can't get there from here. He's a perfectly decent guy. But uh, uh, my guess, my sense is that the Republican electorate has yeah. moved on. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that, uh, with Carl. I covered Mike Pence quite a bit. And uh, he did better uh, for just his, when he was, you know, leading the, we called it Republican Study Committee back then, sort of like the Freedom Caucus. He, he was better when he was let leading the rebel rousers, you know, going against Tom DeLay, clashing with Buckingham's party. And then as soon as he 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 came into leadership, he didn't really know how to to really have that fire anymore. He had to comply with the leadership. And I sort of saw that happening with Trump, too. He was the loyal, the good soldier with Trump. And, and he gets no credit for that because then Trump sort of put him in a terrible position in the end and a no win situation there. And so he can't win right now. It's sort of like he got caught up in the tar baby and there's no way out for him. And I, I just think the party has moved on. A lot of part of the party is ready for a Republican reset. Um, but a big, huge portion of the party is still, um, you know, hoping Trump will run. So that's the big variable for anybody. And uh, with Tim Scott, it was interesting to me. He would not say anything bad about Trump. I said he went after Trump during uh, after the Charlottesville comments when Trump said there was good people on both sides of the debate. And he really confronted Trump on that back then a couple of years, I guess, in 2017 it was. And now when I asked him, I said, well, do, you, do he have any culpability? Does he did he lose some of his sort of a collateral political collateral or moral collateral to run the country again uh, by January 6th by not telling his supporters to stand down? And honestly, Scott said, no. And he said, I, the, I, heard, I was there. I heard the footsteps of the mob. And the last person that I would blame for that is Donald Trump. He said he blames the people that entered the building um, illegally. So there you have it. I mean, he cannot go up against Trump um, right now. It's, and 
without any turmoil and he's avoiding it. And I think that's the smart move. Tom, last thoughts about 2024. <laughs> well, yeah, well, just <laughs> do you want to uh, tell you 2028, yeah. 2032? <laughs> yeah, just in terms of 2024, how do the candidates thread the needle of 2020 election denial and Trump and, you know, waiting until the last mo- moment to decide whether or not uh, Trump will be in or Trump will be out, I guess. And, and, and how much does Trump being in affect the decisions of some of the people that you were talking about? Well, the campaign officially begins right November 9th, the day after the <laughs> midterm election, but it's unofficially already begun. We've seen, you know, candidates, uh, as I mentioned, the people that we've talked about that are out there are kind of gingerly, you know, visiting New Hampshire and Iowa and, and, and it's, it's on the democratic side too. I mean, nobody wants Joe Biden to run. Carl mentioned the, the, you know, numbers from the, the Catholic poll, but that's, that's widespread among Democrats. I mean, they just don't want him to run and, and Kamala Harris is not, a lock to, to win that nomination. I mean, she's, she has her own issues. And so I think we're going to see, um, we're going to see both sides very quickly after this election, uh, we'll get to sorting out the 2024 deal. I think, I think you'll see Joe Biden, although he said he was going to run and he just, we had this news that, you know, we heard, he told Al Sharpton, Al Sharpton delivered the news that Joe Biden told him he was going to run for president in 2024. Um, I think we're going to find out within a couple of weeks after this midterm that Joe Biden's not running and we'll find out whether Donald Trump's going to run or not. And then it'll be just, you know, full on from there. Carl. Well, I want to leave our our listeners with one final thought. We mentioned uh, Ted Lasso earlier and the reporter from it. The reporter is that uh, is Ted Krim from The Independent. And I my favorite line from Ted Krim is he's talking about Ted Lasso's coaching style. But as a former White House correspondent who who didn't even vote because I'm so nonpartisan, but but you kind of root for the president because it's rooting for the country. And we've had, you know, Joe Biden sometimes reminds people of Ted Lasso and, and so do other presidents. You know, Trump did sometimes and they all do. And I want to leave our listeners with my favorite Trent Krim quote. That's Trent Krim from The Independent. His coaching style is subtle. He's talking about Ted Lasso, slowly growing until you can no longer ignore its presence, whether that means allowing followers to become leaders or in a show of respect, eating food so spicy it's sure to wreak massive havoc on his intestinal system. And though I believe this Ted Lasso will fail here and Richmond will suffer the embarrassment, I won't gloat when it happens because I can't help but root for him. Well, we will let the podcast go down as, as official Ted Lasso standers, um, uh, and we will put up a countdown clock to Ted Lasso returning alongside of the midterm election clock and the 2024 election clock. We will leave it there for this week. I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and Susan Crabtree. And thanks to our listeners. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in one form or another. Bookmark the podcast and check back often. Be sure to rate and review in iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find links to the articles we discussed, as well as Carl Cannon's morning note. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm John Sorensen.